Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Hello again, Intelligentsia. John Jeffers here on the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Welcome to another edition. Hope you enjoyed the bonus edition I posted the other day. Take a listen to it. I swear somebody's listening to me. I don't know who, but someone is. Some organization. You say, John, what are you talking about? Well, I'm going to tell you. I did a little piece on the bonus edition about using thermobaric uh, weaponry and that the Russians have used it a lot. Chechnya, Syria, and I posted that, right? And I got this response. I won't say who it is. And he said, oh, bullshit. They're not going to use thermobaric weapons. And I said, well, I disagree. They're going to. And sure enough, the next day, they did. Granted, it's not that hard of a call. But nonetheless, I thought I'd bring it up. All right. Uh, you know, I'm not going to talk about Biden's gaff-a-thon last night, except one thing. What the hell is a pound of Ukrainian people? What the hell does that mean? He's reading the teleprompter. I think he might have met the proud, the proud Ukrainian people, not a pound of Ukrainian people. I have no idea what the hell that means. But then again, it is Biden. If there's any doubt left in your mind that when you turn 82 years old, you are not fit to be president. Now, I'm not saying that he's making any decisions on his own. He isn't. He's clearly, clearly getting instructions from probably the Obama minions who are left over. You know, they got Peppermint Patty sitting there when she asked about we need to start the XL pipeline. And her response is, no, that's not going to happen. Who the hell gave her the power to make that kind of a decision? Shut the hell up. And for you people who voted for Biden, this is all on you. Now, as you know, uh, we've got nuclear saber rattling and when this administration says well he's not going to use it that's what he says all the time well let me tell you there little cupcakes the use of tactical nuclear weapons is in the russian battle doctrine do i think he will i don't know but let me ask let me tell you this if a man has a gun in his hand and he says he's going to shoot you, it would make sense to me, Mr. Vegas, I would get my gun too. At least match him force on force. If he puts his nuclear uh, wings and strike units on alert, we should put ours on alert. It's only correct thinking that says if the man with a gun in his hand says he's going to kill you or shoot you 
You need to believe him. Period. That's what I think. But according to the people in the D.C. bubble, oh, he always says this. He's always doing that. Eh, he's not going to do it. You know, okay. All right. Yeah. And who's going to be the recipients of it when he decides to pull the trigger on his nuclear weapons? And it is true that right now American forces are not engaged in battle. Here's a scenario, my good friends. The way, now granted, the, the Russian Air Force has not unleashed its full fury. They don't, I don't believe their arsenal is built up with a lot of precision-guided munitions. With that said, they're still flying everywhere around Ukraine, except in Ukraine itself. Some of these battles are happening very close to the border. If the Russian Air Force decides to launch a missile or whatever, and it doesn't go where it's supposed to, and it flies over a border, yeah, we will have NATO involved. Now, my personal feeling, my thought is, and I think I said it, in a couple episodes already, I'm going to reiterate it again. And that is, you would be foolish to think that Russian intelligence services are just itching to get into Kiev. Because, and I'll tell you why, when you got John Kerry's kid, you got Bumbler Joe's kid, and Nancy Pelosi's, I don't think it's his kid, her kid, I think it's her nephew, all on the board of Burisma, getting that check. And I think there was one other one. I can't remember who, who the other one is. So it's like four of them in political leadership here in this country whose family members just happen to be on the board of Burisma getting payoffs. Don't think for a minute that Putin would love to get his hands on those records. Because if he does, you know that you know, that you know, he's going to release that information. And you know, that you know, that you know, the mainstream media here in the United States will not report on it. God forbid their hero, the bumbler. Anyways, all right. I think that's about, I, here's another thing too. I don't want to see any more news stories, like here in Chicago, where I live outside the city, thank God. What a hellhole that is. Well, it's turned into. I wouldn't even go. I wouldn't go to Chicago. Won't. Well, not. First of all, I'm not going to have you rip me off with my wallet wide open. That's not going to happen. And two, who the hell knows what's going to happen? They're out of control there. You know, let me ask you this for you Democrats out there. How's that defunding the police thing working out for you? I'd like to know. Anyways. So they got this little section of Chicago called Ukrainian Village. And they, well, we're going to protest. And you see that all over the country. We're going to protest at the embassy. We're going to protest. We're going to protest. How many Ukrainian Americans who have families still in Ukraine, how many of the men 
who are, uh, who are of combat duty age have actually gone to the consulate, gone to the embassy to report for combat duty. Because I'm sure when you ring church bells and you hold your protest, that just helps out the Ukrainians, makes them feel so heartwarmed and just so loved. No. They said what they needed. Now, I don't know how they're going to get all that weaponry in. Now, meanwhile, the European Union says, we're going to send fighter jets. Really? You're going to send fighter jets? Where in the hell are they going to service those jets? I understand all the military airfields in Ukraine have been cratered and are unserviceable. So how are you going to refuel the planes, rearm the planes, and everything else that goes with the logistics of having a fighter jet? How are you going to get all the ammunition and shit you're sending to them? Can't fly it in anymore. Waited too long on that one. So it's got to go in over land. It's got to. I mean, that's why they, I mean, they can't airdrop it. They won't airdrop it. Got to drop There's no, I mean, they can't get into the Black Sea because, you know, we don't want to make the Russian Navy's life miserable, though we should. So it's got to come in over land. Now, if you've been following, Elon Musk activated his Starlink internet service over Ukraine. And he said, we're sending you the antennas. The antennas got there within 48 hours. My question is, where are the munitions? They get the, they get, you know, satellite internet antennas into the country and distributed within four, you know, inside 48 hours, which is good. I'm not criticizing it. How and how much are you going to get the weapon? Ukrainians are asking for a no-fly zone. They probably won't get it. But you never know. If an errant Soviet air-to-air missile goes somewhere other than its target and ends up in a NATO country, you know, or hits a NATO aircraft or lands and kills, you know, nationals other than Ukrainians, hmm. Now, remember, a couple weeks ago when this started, a week ago when it started, I said, watch this guy. He's got designs on Moldova. Well, apparently there's a mistake the Kremlin made. They showed a map of their theater of operations. And on the map, which has got intel services in the West going absolutely gaga, it shows Moldova being subdued by the Russian military. So he ain't stopping at Ukraine, boys and girls. All right. That's my commentary. Let's move on. Oh, the preppers. No, you know what? Hold on. Let me get this out of the way. PJ Media, Robert Spencer. And I talked about this, about the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Excellent article, and I got to share it with you. Woke and stupid. As Russia invades Ukraine, the U.S. Army gives mandatory training on gender identity. The only mandatory training the U.S. Armed Forces needs is how to break things and kill people. That's it. Gender identity 
Oh, for God's sake. So we can only hope that the madness in Ukraine doesn't escalate to the extent that the U.S. military ends up getting involved. It is clear that General Mark Milley and the rest of the Brats have learned absolutely no lessons from Afghanistan and are determined to repeat the same mistakes that led to the catastrophically mishandled withdrawal from Kabul. If the army were called upon to move into Ukraine, which would be an indication that the situation has gotten wildly out of control, it isn't at all clear that today's woke force would pose a significant threat even to the manifestly weak and sluggish Russian forces. An American army presence in Ukraine would likely herald World War III, and we hope it won't come to that, but if it does, look out. <clears throat> These are the priorities of Billy's thoroughly modern military. Early in February, Army officers are forced to sit through an official and mandatory presentation entitled, quote, Policy on the Military Service of Transgender Persons and Persons with Gender Dysphoria, end quote. Guys, I'm not making this up. I'm not. So according to the Washington Free Beacon, the presentation gives training on gender pronouns and coaching officers on when to offer soldiers gender transition surgery. Lord help us. This is the problem when the Democrats get into office and into power. They like to use the military as a social experiment. So when Vladimir Putin's army was preparing to invade Ukraine, officers of the U.S. Army were learning that they have to refer to some men as she and her if they want to keep their jobs. And, and mind you, be attentive for moments when it might be appropriate to Officer Private Jack a chance to become Private Jill. No doubt soon to be Sergeant First Class Jill for being such a useful soldier of the zeitgeist. Now, according to Army spokesmen, this woke presentation was mandatory training and was used to train Army personnel on the recent changes to the DOD and Army transgender service policy. The Free Beacon reports all Army personnel from soldiers to commanders and supervisors are required to participate in the training by September 30th, 2022, according to the spokesman. All of this is part of a larger push by the Biden administration to make the military more welcoming to transgender people. Look, I don't care if you're transgender. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care if you're straight. When you join the military, you agree to become a professional bullet stopper. Oh. So, the presentation states the Army allows transgender soldiers to serve openly, and otherwise qualified soldiers shall not be involuntarily separated, discharged, or denied reenlistment or continuation of service on the basis of gender identity. In a sane society, a man who thinks he is a woman or a woman who thinks she is a man would be recognized as suffering from a severe psychological disorder such that he or she would not be seen as otherwise qualified. But the military's presentation offers the hypothetical scenario of a soldier who was assigned male at birth, but says he identifies as a female 
and lives as a female in his off-duty hours. This language reveals how this entire business is a fantasy from start to finish. Human beings are not assigned a gender at birth, as if the baby is, neut is a neuter or neutral until a doctor or parent decides it will be a boy or a girl. The, the baby is a boy or a girl. All the doctor and the parents do is notice which one. The presentation directs that if a male soldier believes he is female but is not requested to be treated as a female on duty, he should be left alone. However, if the soldier later requests to be identified as a female during duty hours and or experiences increased distress relating to his gender identity, an officer must inform the soldier of the Army's transgender policy and recommend that he uh, sees a military medical provider. The male soldier who asks to be identified as a female during duty hours has lost his basic sense of reality and should be removed from active duty until he understands again that he is a male. But, even short of that, the fact that the U.S. military is spending any time and attention on this matter at all is a sign of our deep cultural crisis. An Army spokesman said that service in the Army is open to all who can meet the standards for military service and readiness. We're going to comment on that in a moment. We remain committed to treating all soldiers with dignity and respect while ensuring good order and discipline. Soldiers who meet those standards can serve openly in their self-identified gender. Again, I don't care. Can they stop a bullet? Can they shoot a bullet? Do the standards for military service and readiness still contain any actual military training, or is it woke indoctrination sufficient now? The military's job is to win kills, or to win wars, well, and kills, not to coddle soldiers with psychological disorders. The Russian invasion of Ukraine only makes it all the more crucial for the military to drop all of its programs of leftist indoctrination and instead focus on actually defending the nation against its enemies. But that doesn't appear to happen or to be close to the top of Biden's handlers' priorities. There. Look, I don't care what you are. I don't care what you're called. You want to run around in women's underwear and dresses in your off-duty time? I don't give a damn what you do. But if the time comes for you to pick up the rifle and stand too, by God, you better be ready to do it. All right. I'm losing it. Here's something. Uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor. Now, this guy is pretty good. This colonel's pretty good. I like him. He talks common sense with Tucker Carlson about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and I wanted to share it with you. Sundance, good job, buddy. Colonel Douglas McGregor appeared as, for a sit-down interview with Tucker Carlson to discuss the latest developments in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So far, McGregor is the one who has been the most accurate in his assessments when compared to the results of the ground in Ukraine. If what McGregor outlines in this interview is correct, and there's no reason to believe it isn't, that President Putin has been planning this operation for a long time. As the multinational corporations, multinational banks, collective corporate and political West, along with the EU, NATO, and media, tell Ukraine to keep fighting, it appears Russia is moving through a methodical plan that they have no hope of stopping. This would explain why the Russian convoys are pausing before going hardcore in the cities and population centers. Here, I wish to share this with you. So listen to Colonel McGregor. What's going on? 
in Ukraine, and we're honored to do that. Doug McGregor, thank you for joining us. Sure. So the first question is, where are we now? We keep hearing these reports about a Russian convoy coming into the capital city, et cetera, et cetera. But big picture, where is the war as of tonight? Well, the first five days, we witnessed a very slow, methodical movement of Russian forces into eastern Ukraine. That is Ukraine, the third of Ukraine, which is on the eastern side of this river called the Dnieper. They moved slowly, cautiously. They tried to reduce casualties among the civilian population tried to give as many Ukrainian troops and forces as possible the opportunity to give up, to surrender. That is over. And the phase in which we find ourselves now, Russian forces have now maneuvered to encircle and surround the remaining Ukrainian forces and destroy them through a series of massive rocket artillery strikes, air strikes, with Russian armor then slowly but surely closing the distance and annihilating what's left. So this is, a, this is the beginning frankly, of the end of Ukrainian resistance. So the ugly stuff is just beginning itself. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, so this is a question you don't often hear asked, but it's essential to our welfare here in the United States, to our strategic thinking about this. What is Putin's goal here? What's his aim? Well, I think Vladimir Putin set out to honor his word of 2007. 2007 at the Munich Security Conference, he said, we will not tolerate the expansion of NATO into to a point where your NATO, your border, is touching Russia, specifically Ukraine and Georgia. We see these as essentially Trojan horses for NATO's military power and U.S. influence, subversion, and so forth. He then turned to several opportunities to reinforce that over and over and over again, most recently with President Biden, in the hopes that he could avoid taking action to effectively clean out eastern Ukraine of any opposition forces whatsoever and to put his forces in a position vis-a-vis -vis NATO to deter us from any further attempts to influence or change Ukraine into effectively a platform for the projection of U.S. and Western power into Russia. Now his goal, as we see it at the moment, is to seize this entire area of eastern Ukraine. That's pretty clear. He's going to roll up to that river up near Kiev. He has actually moved over the river and is preparing to go in and capture that city entirely. At that point, he has to decide what else he wants to do. I don't think he wants to go any further west. I think he'd be very satisfied to hold that point. But he would like whatever emerges from this that we call Ukraine, whether it's just the western side or it encompasses some of the, both the east and the west of Ukraine, to be neutral, not aligned and preferably friendly to Moscow. That he will accept. Anything short of that, his war has been a waste of time. How should the United States respond at this point? Well, I think President Biden and Sullivan, his national security advisor, have already given some indication of their readiness to accept something like that. They're not going to have any choice. Either they accept it, or then they put him in the position of having to do more than he would like to do, which would probably not go down well with NATO. No one really wants Russian forces on their border, least of all Poland. Right. So I think Sullivan and Biden will essentially tell Zelensky, if he is still the president at that point, and if he's still running any semblance of the Ukrainian government, which is largely collapsing now, if he is still there, he's going to be told, accept the deal, go neutral because there really is no choice. You are hearing elements in the United States Congress, it's almost unanimous in the media, 
calling on the Biden administration to enforce a so-called no-fly zone over Ukraine. It, what would be the effect of that? Well, you'd end up at war with Russia because the Russians are not going to allow Western aircraft, U.S. aircraft flying over the battlefield in eastern Ukraine under any circumstances. And Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, flew to Poland to stop the Poles from essentially offering MiG-29 aircraft that were improved and modernized to the Ukrainians, allowing their pilots to come to Poland, fly these into Ukraine. He put a stop to it saying anything like that could lead to war and NATO will not go to war. And see, this is the interesting part. Now everyone is talking about spending lots of money on defense and lots of money for NATO, but very shortly people are going to begin to ask why. Why are we doing? Because it's patently obvious that NATO is not in a position to fight, not in a position to challenge the Russians. So I think Mr. Biden's problem tonight is not just his narrative is going to break down very rapidly over the next few days as it becomes obvious that this whole Ukraine business was a fantasy on his part. He, he's going to end up trying to write checks that he can't cash because we can't afford a massive military. We can't afford to put more forces forward. And if we try to do it, it'll be self-defeating. So I think we're in a real crisis now that no one has really, really figured out yet, and that is NATO itself and our position on the European continent. All of this is now at risk. I think a lot of people were taken by surprise by this invasion. I'll admit that I was also, not that, of course, we're experts on Eastern Europe. But the president and his team had said for weeks, in effect, we've got this under control. We have applied enough pressure on the Russians that it would be very unwise for them to do this. That was a massive miscalculation, obviously. Uh, how did they screw up? Well, two things. I think that Mr. Putin has priced in the cost. In other words, he's not a fool. He sat down with Xi in Beijing and made it very clear what he was going to do, what his goals were in eastern Ukraine and only eastern Ukraine initially. And I think he got, he got the conditions he wanted from Xi of support and assistance through this process because he knew what we would try to do to him. We would try to destroy Russia financially, economically, in whatever way we could. So we just created a, like a real alliance between Russia and China, or in any effect there now is one. Oh, there's like. a real strategic partnership. There's no question about it. Because China needs Russia in order to secure Central Asia and all the routes to Europe. China wants to do business with Europe. That's why the Chinese would like Mr. Putin to end this quickly. But Putin insisted on those first five days slowing things down because he wanted to minimize damage to property and he wanted to minimize the loss of life, particularly upon a, in the population that he was trying to bring into, effectively, a new Ukraine that is Russian. Uh, he's, he's essentially discarded that now. So I just want to be absolutely clear on this point because a lot hangs on it. So many of our leaders are beholden to Russia, have gotten rich from Russia, Joe Biden's family, Nancy Pelosi's family, pick one, they all have. Yes. Putin would not have been able to do what he did, invade Ukraine, without the support of China. It sounds like what you're saying. I think that's absolutely true. If China, if China had not reassured him, we will stay the course with you, I doubt seriously that he would be doing this now. So since everyone is in moral outrage mode and screaming the F word at each other on Twitter, I wonder why China's not included in their outrage. Well, that's, a, that's a, an important question that deserves a great answer, but I'm going to let you take that one on. I'm not going to go there tonight. Doug McGregor. Um. There you go. I think Colonel McGregor's probably right. Probably right. For you preppers out there. Da, 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 da. Interesting. Survivalpedia. 
Bill White. Becoming a post-disaster community leader. Preppers, given the fact that, you know, they start rattling about nuclear weapons, you need to start going over your plans. You need to start looking at them, saying, okay, is there a weak spot? Is there a hole here? How do I fix it? How do I remedy it? That's what you got to do. Now's the time to do it. Now, Mr. White wrote this great article. I want to share with you because it's important. He starts out by saying, I've been reading William Fortune's One Second After Trilogy for the umpteenth time. It seems I never get tired of his narrative, but there's something more to it than that. I think Fortune has managed to capture the reality of, a, of what a post-EMP world will look like and the problems people will face. While not everyone lives in such an idealistic setting as he does, we can all expect to face the same problems should an EMP ever take our, our, out our electric grid. Speaking of which, the New York Post today is reporting that Russia is now engaged in cyber attacks on the U.S. It seems like their first, uh, their first strike is against the financial sector, which won't do anything. The banks have spent billions hardening their systems against cyber attack. What isn't, and you need to understand this, preppers, and everyone else listening, the real linchpin, the real key, is the electric grid. The United States has been fucking around and fucking around for years with it. And they've been told time and time again, the, electric, the electrical grid needs to be updated and rebuilt and hardened. Not only from EMP, but from cyber. And the Congress always fucks around with it because they're a bunch of whores on Capitol Hill. And they dick around with it. And now, if, if and, I'm, and I'm guessing here, it's a matter of time before they try to hit the electric grid. The Russians are going to use a cyber attack on our electric grid. And all they need is to find one computer weak spot. Just one. Think about that, my friends. So, getting back to it, we here in the prepping and survival community tend towards being lone wolves. At the most, we share our plans and prepping with our families and our survival team, but it rarely goes beyond that. While there are certain benefits to that in the short term, it ignores some very real problems about long-term survival, namely that we need more skills than just survival skills, and our children will need those other people even more. Unless we want to consign our children to a caveman sort of existence, we need to think about more than just survival. And this is true, my friends. Granted, living in a cave is much better than dying. There's no question about that. But would you want to live in that cave by yourself for the rest of your life? Wouldn't it be better to find your soulmate, share that life with them? Wouldn't it be great to have some friends? Wouldn't it be great to have all the benefits that modern society provides us and preferably without the problems? I mean, that's the utopia and ideal right there. This is one thing I think Fortune got right in the story. Now, John Matherson wasn't just trying to survive himself high enough in the woods. He was helping his community to survive. Even the town prepper who didn't share his food stockpile ended up playing an important part in helping the community. 
The only ones who were living in the woods formed their own community and eventually became allies of Matherson's small community, working with them for mutual defense and trading goods with them. Fortunately for them, the town of Black, Montana, North Carolina, was an almost ideal location with natural defense provided by the surrounding mountains, gravity-fed water from their local reservoir, eliminating several of their biggest survival concerns. Those are advantages that none of us are likely to have, but at the same time, our own communities have advantages as well. We just, we just have to figure out what they are. A big thing that Fortune got right is that it'll be easier to survive in a small community than it will be in a large city. While small rural towns aren't the treasure trove of food supplies that so many people seem to think they are, the ratio of many critical supplies, especially food and water, to people most likely be better than it is in the city. On the other hand, cities have resources that don't exist in the country, like hospitals, warehouses full of usable equipment. And as I said, we have to figure out the advantages of the community we find ourselves living in. Unlike many people think, some sort of leadership will arise in a post-disaster world. What that leadership is will depend on the severity of the disaster and the kind of people who are there. And I'm not sure that there will be cases in which the local leadership steps up to do what's needed. But I'm just as sure there will be cases in which local leadership abandons their post, probably in fear, realizing that they just aren't big enough to fill the need. Sadly, many of those who stay around will probably be the wrong kind of people who will see the situation as a chance for personal benefit. Yeah, we call them politicians. They're useless. They won't make decisions based on what's best for the community. Either their decisions will be for personal benefit or because it increases their personal power. The other risk that our communities face is that when the elected and appointed leadership abandons their post, warlords will rush in to fill the power vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. They may not call themselves that, but that is what they will be. In the worst cases, they will have fought for the right to take over the community, thereby confirming their role as a warlord. We know this about warlords because of countless examples from around the world. While nature may abhor a vacuum, warlords love one. They can sense it faster than a shark smelling blood in the water. Their only concern is if they can establish control before others try to take it from them. I know of no sure way of keeping warlords from trying other than to make sure there is no power vacuum. If we ignore the situation and leave it to others, we will eventually have to deal with these warlords ourselves. So the question really boils down to whether we take a leadership position ourselves or we back someone else's play who rises to the occasion. I'll tell you this, if we back someone else, we'd better be sure that we know who they are and what they're going to do. If you're already fulfilling a leadership position in your community, more power to you. But since you're a prepper, I doubt you are. That doesn't mean you shouldn't, especially in a post-disaster world. We will probably be the only ones around who have any idea of what to do to keep the people in our communities alive. Since we are not warlords, the key to our leadership is the people putting us there. That means that they decide for themselves that we are the kind of leaders they need and that we are the ones who can make things better for them, even if we can't just make the problem disappear. And it all starts by gathering people together in your community, bringing people up to date with what has happened and what it means for both long and short term. 
most will not know what is going on or what to expect from the government to come in and bail them out. I imagine it'll be a hard blow for more, for most people who have been raised to believe in the nanny state to accept that the government is no longer there for them and that whatever government is left is not in any condition to help themselves, let alone anyone else. This is where your opportunity to show your leadership potential begins. The first thing you can do to show your leadership potential is to help people understand what is happening around them. As a prepper, you studied all kinds of potential disaster scenarios, so you're more likely to be able to identify what is happening than anyone else around you. While that might not seem like much to you, to those scared people who have no idea what's going on, it will make you sound like the smartest person on the planet. You have now become the smartest guy or gal in the room. By the way, quick note here. We have more women listening to the Contra Radio Network than we do men. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Back to it. And one second after, Matheson's first real action was to pull out a study that he had participated during his Army career dealing with EMP and take it to the community leaders, giving them his analysis of the situation. That one action alone made him part of the leadership of the community, accepted by both elected and appointed officials. While I can't guarantee he'll do the same in your circumstance, it will definitely let people know who you are and that you know something about what's happening. When people don't know what's happening, the person who does is a natural leader. People want and expect their leaders to know, even if that's an unrealistic expectation. Nevertheless, by showing that you have some idea of what's going on, people will continue coming to you for more information. Brings us to the next action you can do to show your leadership. Giving people instructions on how to survive. As we know, very few people have any idea of what it takes to survive. They don't realize their ignorance now, but they will figure it out real quick when the electricity goes out and there's no water coming through the kitchen faucet. Even the simplest survival task will be a revelation to those around you. Most people know that they can boil water to purify it, but they aren't going to know that they should. Nor are most of them going to have any idea of how to boil, boil it since their stoves aren't going to be working. They're going to need to know what to do, even to be able to survive the first few days without getting sick. Once again, being the person with the knowledge has the tendency to set you up as a leader. People will come to you with all sorts of questions because they won't know where else to go. They may actually think of your knowledge as a valuable community resource to be protected and valued for what you can do for the community. Along with instruction comes the need to give people direction. Even something as simple as boiling water needs to be done with efficiency so that resources aren't wasted. If each family boils water for that day's needs, that's one fire per family for at least 20 minutes it takes to boil the water. But if two or three families get together to boil water, they can save on firewood. Considering that firewood will probably be scarce to start with, it's worthwhile saving it. We talked about the survival team in the property community, and there is a real need for teamwork. That same principle goes for our communities as well. If water needs to be gathered and gardens need to be planted, who will organize it? Who's going to know the people which task to do? It will have to be someone who knows what needs to be done and how important each task is. Granted, 
That's a bigger task than anyone can handle, but it will still have to be done. And the best way to approach it is to find capable people you can put, you can put in charge of different areas and then have everyone else volunteer to work in one of those areas. If too many people volunteer for one area, shift some of them to another. If people don't volunteer, assign them a task that nobody wants. It will be necessary to identify those who have essential and usable skills during this process. Those are the most important people in your community and their skills and knowledge should be husbanded and utilized. Some special considerations may be needed to make for these people in order to ensure their survival. While that will be decried as unfair by some, it will ultimately save more lives. That has to be our number one goal. This is going to be harder than anyone can realize. As a society, we're not used to people telling us what to do. We're also not socialist in our very nature. Yet, this will actually have to be a socialist effort, at least in the sense that everyone doing their part working for the common good. Finally, people will most likely be willing to follow those who provide for their needs. No, I'm not suggesting you feed them out of your own stockpile. I keep a few hundred pounds of extra rice and beans to give my neighbors, even though it isn't enough to care for the whole community. Rather, what I'm talking about is knowing where there are resources that will help people survive and organizing efforts to secure those resources so they will be best used in the community's interest, especially to keep people fed and alive. And a lot of what Fortune talks about in his trilogy are the efforts undertaken to use the resources available to them as a community and the, the discussions that the community's leadership had and how to utilize them. There are many good lessons to be learned from their conversations, especially about how to balance the community's needs with the individual rights of those who own the resources. And of course, this is going to be most apparent in the area of food. Now, there are a few farmers in the area of Black Mountain. Obviously, most of the food and all the livestock belong to those farms, which were privately owned. Stealing that food and livestock would be criminal, taking the community down the path towards communism, even though people needed the food. Therefore, some compensation was necessary in the name of fairness to those farmers. At the same time, they couldn't afford to eat their seed corn, killing all the livestock and eating the seed this year and not having anything for the next. Survival has to mean sustainable survival, with plans going farther than the horizon. That requires someone with vision and enough knowledge to put the vision into place. So in conclusion, you can't see the future any better than anyone else can, but it seems to me that any prepper following these steps would naturally become a leader without trying to become one. People won't want a political leader anyway probably thinking that whatever disaster is a failure of the politicians. Now, that's correct thinking. They'll want someone who can keep them alive, and these steps should do just that. See, it won't be easy being a leader of the post-disaster community, but it is a necessary job that someone has to do. And filling that role may be nothing more than keeping someone else from doing it. But in keeping with that other person out of the role, we can ensure our own family survival. And isn't that the whole idea of being a prepper anyway? Bill White, he's the author. He's the author of The Conquering the Coming Collapse and a former Army officer, manufacturing engineer, and business manager. More recently, he left the business world to work as a cross-cultural missionary on the Mexico border. Bill has been a survivalist since the 1970s when the nation was in the latter days of the Cold War. He had determined to head into the Colorado Rock 
Rocky should Washington ever decide to push the button. While those days have passed, the knowledge of that Bill gained during that time hasn't. He now works to educate others on the risks that exist in our society and how to prepare to meet them. So, there you go. That's about the guy who wrote it. And you know what? I think he makes a lot of good points. Things that you need. Things that we should be thinking about. All right, my friends. I think that's about it for this week. And, of course, if something else craps up, well, we can always count on me to come back and bitch about it or whatever, or at least let you know about it. I want to thank you again for listening. Prep now. Live tomorrow. I'm John Jeffers on the Jeffers Brief on Contra Radio Network. Have an American day.